Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. We're on the third podcast of medical marijuana. So hopefully uh, you're enjoying this. Hopefully it's creating some discussion and we're going to dig in to some of the evidence. And the evidence is quite interesting. So what is the evidence for medical cannabis or medical marijuana? And it really depends. If you are looking in Dr. Google, there is some scary stuff out there. Uh, in particular, that cannabis will cure cancer. Uh, it has the ability to uh, control diabetes. Uh, it has the ability to cure multiple different conditions. And people, we do not have the evidence yet that supports that. Hopefully, people will find some evidence so that we can make some recommendation. But there is a lot of misinformation out there. The most concerning misinformation, I feel, is around women in pregnancy and the use of cannabis to treat uh, nausea of pregnancy. What we're actually starting to see is that this is the most common substance that we're finding in newborns' urines. And the problem with that, if you think about it from the long term, so this, this substance really gets into the brain of, uh, of a neonate, and it starts to have an impact. So we've had some signs that shows us that it ha- does have some long-term impact around the cognitive outcome for these uh, young babies who are exposed to cannabis in utero. So we need to make sure that we're having those conversations with our patients, especially patients who are, um, uh, you know, pregnant or having kids. So the reality check around the evidence is that we have no approved clinical indication in Canada for medical cannabis due to that sparse medical evidence or research. Now, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, is that we recently had an approval of a high CBD oil that's used in kids with with seizures that did not respond to normal conventional treatment. So that is the first uh, approved clinical indication that we've had for cannabis. So as I mentioned previously, is that cannabis is not approved as a medication by Health Canada, so it has no eight-digit DIN number. And we have no recommendations around standardized dosing. So this is what's created some of this confusion around how we should be, you know, supplying that information to our patients or guiding our patients to making the right decision for them. So most of us use the simplified guideline, which has made three recommendations for medical cannabis. So this was a simplified guideline was published in the Canadian Family Physician, uh, I believe it was in February of 2016. And this was a systematic review of a systematic review. So they took all of the data that was out there. And from that data, they basically made three recommendations, is that medical cannabis could use be used for pain that was neuropathic and pain that was at the end of life. It could also be used for chemo-induced nausea and vomiting. It could also be used for spasticity that we saw with MS and spinal cord injury. The important thing that they made as a recommendation is that when you're initiating cannabis, the mantra is to start low and go slow. So the lower the concentration, the better for the patient. And there is a very good uh, flow chart uh, that uh, sort of takes us around the decision making. So if you're considering medical marijuana, you know, you want to make sure that it's neuropathic pain, palliative pain, chronic 
uh, chemo-induced nausea and vomiting or spasticity that we see with MS or spinal cord injury. So if it's not that, then it's recommended against use. So if it is, what they do is if if it does have those particular indications um, and you've tried at least three other different medications for neuropathic pain, so it's actually not considered full first line, it's actually considered third line uh, for uh, the treatment of neuropathic pain. If it is a palliative care patient, it's considered second line. Um, or if refractory or standard therapies for chemo-induced nausea or spasticity. So if the patient meets those regulations, then you can give them a trial. And as I mentioned, they basically say uh, to start low and go slow. They recommend that patients not uh, avoid smoking. In all cases, it's about trying to balance the harms and benefits. So the simplified guideline generally is against the use of medical cannabis for most medical conditions due to lack of evidence and known harms. So as a clinician who's making a recommendation, we don't have the evidence that supports the use for using this for chronic low back pain or for fibromyalgia, which is being used out there on a regular basis. If you are considering uh, cannabis in a patient, the recommendation is that you use synthetic cannabinoids first. So that's the Nabilon or the Nabixamol Sativex initially, but only after you've tried the two or three other medications as well. So I'll, I'll show you the guidelines that are put out by the Canadian Pain Society, and we can actually post those on the webpage. There is zero evidence for the use of medical cannabis for mental health conditions, for anxiety, for acute pain, for headaches, osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, general spasticity, or insomnia. Even though when you ask your patient, tell me how cannabis helps you, and they say, look, it's helping me with sleep, So we have no evidence that supports that, but that's the anecdotal evidence that we're seeing with patients. So patients are going to use it for that. So what we want to do is try and point out to them that over time, it may be very disruptive for sleep because of the nature of the substance. So as people develop tolerance and they become more dependent on it, they're going to experience withdrawal. So it can start to be very disruptive at sleep time. So it's important. It can also, if people are using it to to, to kind of relax, it can actually start making them more anxious because of the nature of how the substance works. We see this with all kinds of other substances as well, like short-acting opiates. So if you get get using these substances on a regular basis, you're going to develop tolerance. You're going to start to experience dependency. That is just, dependency is not addiction, right? So dependency is just that our body gets used to it so that if I stop the medication, I'm going to experience withdrawal. So what withdrawal feels like to somebody who's using it for anxiety is they're going to say, I feel more anxious. Or if they're using it for pain, I feel more anxious, I have more pain. So that's what withdrawal is going to feel like to that person. They're not going to say, I feel withdrawal. So it's very hard to for patients that are feel very passionate about this, they feel very committed to their use of this medication, to kind of be ready to hear those kinds of things. So I always tell myself, pick my fights and roll with resistance. My job is to really kind of guide them through this. Ultimately, the journey is theirs. They're going to make the decisions that are going to work for them. But we also need to be able to provide the evidence around what we know about this substance. It's just so important. So when we look at the recommendations around what are the pharmacological uh, approaches to neuropathic pain, step one are the... uh, Now, and also to share with you, a lot of the pharmacology that we use to treat uh, neuropathic pain in particular, it really is not that great. 
cannabinoids are, are in that same category. So all of these medications are very limited in neuropathic pain syndromes. But what the recommendations are is that in step one, we should be considering gabapentinoids, tricyclic antidepressants, and the SNRIs. So the SNRIs would be something like duloxetine or Effexor. Step two is to look at the opiate analgesics, and then you have to be very careful around an opiate trial. We talked about that in a previous podcast. So there's limitations around the opiate analgesics as well because of that tolerance, because of that dependency and the withdrawal. Step three is when the cannabinoids come in. So where the cannabinoids can come in in step two is in that palliative care population. But step three is where you can introduce those cannabinoids. So that's the recommendations to the Canadian Pain Society. There's also a very good uh, document put out by Dalhousie University by the academic detailers, and these are pharmacists that do a lot of really good work. And so one of the documents they have out there that was published in April of 2018, and I will put a link to that, is Choices Before Opiates. So they basically also navigated that literature, and so some of the recommendations that they made is that that cannabinoids can be suggested as a third-line option for neuropathic pain after an ADICA trial with at least three prescribed analgesics. The benefits are limited, and there's a high risk of harms. In general, evidence has a very high risk of bias, and the long-term consequences are unknown. Product availability can have far higher concentrations of THC and CBD than those that have been researched. And in fact, from what I can see, is the highest THC concentration that's been studied, and that's in the college document uh, from the Canadian Family Physicians, is 9.6%. We haven't even done the studies around CBD yet. So hopefully we'll start to see some of this. But just to kind of bring that point forward in terms of how limited the pharmacology is. If you look at cannabinoids for for neuropathic pain, for every 100 people we treat, only nine will improve with treatment. Um, 25 will improve with placebo or no treatment, and then 66 have no improvement. But if I look at things like amitriptyline, which is a tricyclic antidepressant, uh, 25 will improve with treatment, 25 will have no effect, or they'll get the same kind of improvement with placebo or no treatment, and 50 have no improvement. And there's some great documents that kind of share this sort of thing. So I sometimes will take this document, show patients, especially if they're trying to make some decisions around cannabis, that it's very limited. And in fact, cannabis has the lowest improvement out of all the pharmacology that we use for neuropathic pain. So only nine patients actually improve with treatment. So let's dig into the National Cannabis Survey in the second quarter release, which was in the end of July. So here's something that's very sobering. So I'm not sure if most people are aware that Canada has the second largest consumption of cannabis per capita in the world. If you look at us provincially, Nova Scotia has the highest uh, percentage of users uh, in Canada. So data that was just released in 2019 is that our numbers have gone up to 24%. So the average Canadian usage is around 15.4%. So Nova Scotia has a very high use. So it kind of makes me step back and think, wow, if we have some of the highest consumption in Canada, does that mean we have some of the highest consumption per capita in the world? If you look at the data from that perspective, I mean, that's quite sobering and quite scary as well. The other thing that's quite interesting is that 33% of our users are that 15 to 24%. Now, what's good in the data, what we're seeing is that, that that young age group, which is the most vulnerable, that 15 to 24-year-old is not increasing, but they still are the highest consumers 
in Canada around cannabis. So 15 to 24%, 33% of users are actually in that age group. If you look at other provinces, uh, you know, PEI, about 13%, Newfoundland, about 16%. Some of the territories, though, are very, very high. So if you look at Iqaluit in Nunavut, 32%, that is a very high number. Now, what's interesting in the trends is that if we look at whose use of cannabis is going up, it's actually among males, primarily middle-aged males. So we saw a a use of that middle-age group. So that's the 45 to 64-year-old. So in 2018, they were 16%. Um, so males, uh, the male use has gone up, sorry. So uh, the, so in 2019, it's about 22%. So more men than women use cannabis. And actually, they use it differently too, which is kind of interesting. So men are more likely to purchase. Women are more likely to get it from family and friends. Um, the other thing that's interesting, so that the group that has increased in their use is that 45 to 64-year-old. So in 2018, that was 9%. And in 2019, they're up to 14%. What's really good about legalization, though, and I think we need to point this out, is that more individuals are actually getting their cannabis legally. So that's gone up from 23% to 47%. So those that have purchased it illegally have actually gone down. So they've gone down from 51 to 38%. So the good thing is that people are getting it legally. If you look at the summary overall, though, is that generally there's about 5.3 million or 18% of Canadians age 15 and older, reported using cannabis in the last three months. First-time users in the post-legalization period are older. Half of the new users were aged 45 or older, while in the same period in 2018, this age group represented one-third of new users. Use is more common, so here we're coming back to that 15 to 24 percent, about 33 percent, than among people aged 25 and older who are 16 percent. This is also very scary, and I think this is something that we're going to have to address as a nation. It's estimated that 13%, about you know half a million Canadian workers who are current cannabis users, consume cannabis before or during work. So there are some implications around safety that need to be addressed. So just uh, it's quite sobering when we start to look at some of these numbers. So other concerning trends that we're starting to see, and we talked about this in the last podcast, is that we're starting to see this huge divide around THC and CBD. And remember, THC is that psychoactive component. CBD is what Mother Nature put in that plant to kind of balance that out. So we're starting to see this divide, in particular around our recreational users. We also talked about the number of hospitalizations that have been going up. So if we look at Ontario and Alberta, both of those have actually started to increase significantly. Um, And this is mostly around the edibles. And we suspect that once the edibles become legal, that we're going to see this as well. Other things that have been kind of interesting around the trends has been around uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And I'll try and do a podcast on this, but this is one in 10 of the patients we're seeing in our emergency room now have this condition. And this is a real parad- the, the And the patients that are coming in with this are miserable. And this is where you have a paradoxical effect of the cannabis. I mean, just like opioids can cause pain, cannabis can actually cause nausea and vomiting. And this is where patients will start to get severe, severe colicky belly pain. And then they vomit. And they vomit from their toes. And they're super miserable. And the only way they get relief is to go into a hot shower. So in theory, there's different reasons why this happens, but it's felt to be related to the vasculature of the gut. So what happens are these blood vessels dilate around the gut, um, and they cause severe colicky pain. And then what the shower does, or what the uh, hot tub does, is it brings that 
um, blood flow to the surface. Because of that, you can also, there's a couple of studies that have looked at capsation, which is a topical. Uh, so sometimes we'll get patients to put that on their belly. But patients are super miserable. It becomes a real problem, uh, especially where we've had most of the concern have been around our diabetics, especially our type 1 diabetics, because we are seeing such high users in young people. So if you have a type 1 diabetic who is not vomiting because of ketosis, meaning that they're not vomiting because of their insulin problem, you know, that they're not getting their insulin. In fact, what they're vomiting from is a complication of the cannabis. But of course, then they're at risk of developing diabetic ketoacidosis because they're not able to eat, they're not able to kind of maintain that piece. So we've had a couple of really sick diabetics where this has been a problem and they're just not ready to give up the cannabis. What I often tell patients is even if you can drop down the potency, we're not sure why we're seeing this. Theory is, I mean, the first case was reported in 2005 in Canada, but it, there is a theory that it may be related more to the potency of cannabis that people are using. Other things that we're seeing are amotivational syndromes, so kids that are just not motivated to move forward in their life, to have purpose in their life, to stay connected. They're just kind of really disconnected, very isolated. Um, so uh, that's another problem. And we talked about pregnancy and pot use, which has been also a concern. Um, one of the last studies is that, you know, one of the surveys that was done, that 21% of Canadians think it's okay for pregnant women to use pot for nausea and pain. Um, and 40% think it's okay for a pregnant woman to use pot for nausea or pain. So this is kind of scary, actually. And these gummy bears, I can just see how many kids, not to mention pets as well, who can get into this. So the most alarming, though, that we mentioned previously was actually the psychosis that we're starting to see. So psychosis that's happening primarily in young people because their brains are more vulnerable, and they usually stay in this state for days. So psychosis mostly related to shatter. Um, that's been our experience in our emergency room. I'm not sure how other emergency rooms have been experiencing, but it's very tragic and very sad. And some of these kids just do not come back. So we need to be able to protect kids from cannabis. We know that... 60-70% uh, of kids get their first exposure of opiates from their parents' medicine cabinet. We don't know how many kids are getting their first exposure of cannabis from their parents who are using cannabis. There also is cannabis use disorder or addiction. It does happen. A lot of people don't think you can develop addiction to cannabis, but you can. And it's also very devastating to try and get kids, um, to, because we don't have that cannabis patch yet. <laughs> what we need is a cannabis patch, just like we need a nicotine patch when people develop nicotine addiction. Uh, so they are using some of the nabiximols to try and manage cannabis, but it's very expensive, and not everybody has good coverage. I just want to mention this Rick Simpson oil, and it's, it's really concerning for me, uh, primarily... Um, for patients who are living with cancer and their families that are also trying to help them stay alive. And this is where we're trying to navigate hope. So it is really sad. So typically the discussion I always have with families, I don't want to tell them not to use it, even though I do tell them. It's probably not a great idea, especially if their parent is a someone who doesn't use cannabis at all, because this is a really high concentration of THC. So I just try to help them navigate that area. And um, it's often coming from the kids that are coming from, you know, other places. They're, you know, they're, they're reading about this online and they're bringing it to their, their mother or their father because they really, or their grandfather, because they really want to do what they can to keep them alive. And what this Rick Simpson oil is doing is giving them false hope. So we want to help them navigate that hope so that they can find a, a a way to have an ending to their story that they know that they're not causing harm, but 
Uh, so we have to be very careful. So it's really important that we have that discussion. We don't shut it out um, and just know what's out there. So it is problematic, the rickettsia oil. And I also tell physicians, beware of the takedown. And this is the CBD takedown. So your patient, uh, who you are concerned about, who may not meet the criteria for uh, medical marijuana, but they'll come to your office and say, look, I just want it for CBD. I hear it's great for arthritis. I hear it's great for joint pain. So they'll tell you that they're just using CBD only. And there are blogs out there, one from the coast that I was able to listen to, how to sort of coaching patients on how to get their medical marijuana exemption. So this CBD takedown is one way. Um, they can go to after-hour clinics, get a copy of uh, their visit in that after-hour clinic, take it to one of these compassion clubs, and that will be their medical documentation. Um, and patients will often come armed with lists of conditions, and so they'll know the right words to say to you as a prescriber. So whatever you need to do, don't let a patient tell you how to prescribe these medications. You need to get yourself educated and have those conversations. It's also very legal. Now they can get it at the uh, at the liquor store if they feel strongly about it. So navigating hope around high concentrations, um, so minimizing those no's, trying to reduce harm, and uh, you know having those discussions with patients. So so what's a physician to do, or what is a prescriber to do? So from my perspective, it's really about harm reduction. It's about having those conversations. Don't block that conversation. There's some great documentation out there uh, that parents can use about how to talk to your kids about cannabis. So Health Canada has a great document that was sent out to all uh, medical practitioners. Uh, very good language there, some good talking points. But what I do with cannabis is I treat it like all other high-risk pharmacology. So I, I, I need to understand the patient. I need to understand that risk to the patient. and But ultimately, it is their journey through life, and I'm there to provide that expertise and support. So another philosophy I use, we use a lot in addiction medicine, is you pick your fights and roll with resistance. So it's a very important thing. So... Some of the principles like harm reduction, motivational interview, because lots of patients are using this now. So when you think about motivational interview, so I've just presented some evidence around it, which is not that great. But here's the thing. So when I think of motivational interviewing, this is what I think of. Evidence is possibility. It only has power if we use it. But let's just add something in around the motivation. So evidence is possibility. It only has power if we are ready to use it or if we know how to use it. So that's really important. So many patients are not ready to hear what we're saying. The only thing I can control is whether or not I give them that medical documentation. And if they choose, uh, if I feel that the risk is too high, then I can help them navigate harm by telling them to get it legally, um, to try and minimize the THC concentration. If they're not, if they're using it for something where it's not recommended, having that conversation with them talking about things like some talking points about how our body gets used to it. They're going to end up pushing the the potency, which is going to give them all kinds of complications. The talking points mostly, and this cannabis talk kit is, is what this, and I'll put a link to that as well, but it's very, very good. How to talk to your teens about cannabis. So frame the conversation on safety, not moral or ethical reasoning. I actually had a physician say to me one time that he felt morally and ethically he had a responsibility to give this to the patient. But in fact, we don't have a moral or ethical uh, responsibility. We have to make it about safety. So we want to make sure that we're, we're recommending a substance that is going to keep that patient safe. It's not going to cause more problems for them in the long term. So when you're talking to patients about risk, the important thing, like I said, is, is 
you want to find out how that cannabis, how they're going to use that cannabis, what they're hoping that it can do for them, bringing in that conversation around tolerance and dependency and withdrawal, and also discussing that risk around addiction. So patients may not be ready to hear those things, but I think it's important that we do use uh, some of those important talking points. So what about the future? So we're getting close to the end of the podcast and, uh, and the and, end around cannabis is that, you know, personally, I feel that there should be a cannabis prescribing course that we can use because it is a complex area. I mean, even even recommending in terms of how we calculate dosing, um, how we um, where we should be starting the type of plant. I mean, it's a very complex area. So how do we monitor use and adjust if there is aberrancy? So if we see problematic use, and it's not us that's recommended, it's somebody else's. Do we have any ability to pull that back? I mean, I'm always amazed at how uh, uh, patients can get access that are very high risk, and you start to see that decline in them physically because you know that they're going to be at risk. But who's accountable for that? Who do you go to to try and challenge that where the, the the recommendation has come from another clinician who is not actually in the province. So is it our college that is supposed to help us with this? I don't know. So you're trying to, to, to navigate some of this, this confusion. So we need to keep following the data. We need more research. I want to believe that there is going to be benefit to patients, but I need to see the evidence. And we want to make sure that we're continuing to follow the trends, looking at hospitalizations, looking at emergency department visits. All right, so the important thing, I'm just going to end there now, is to start low, go slow, establish goals of care, the benefit early in the process, and reevaluate that frequency with the patient. So you want to look at function, you want to look at pain, treat cannabis as you would all other high-risk pharmacology, care enough to set boundaries, and don't ever let a patient tell you how to prescribe a dangerous drug. I will put a link to actually a nice YouTube video, which kind of bring it, brings in all the simplified guidelines. It's kind of fun to watch. It's about four minutes. Um, so I will put a, a link on the webpage. So we're going to stop there. So that's cannabis. Hopefully we'll get some good feedback. Hope to hear from you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.